the sermon today was first preached in um, December of 2008. And I put it back right into the same format. There's only one less slide this time. I know this is more than we usually do. The reason for doing this is that the content, this is Luke 13, 31 through 35, and I'll show you the layout in Luke, which is pretty amazing. The content is pertinent to what I've been teaching at Sunday school about Luke Acts, where Jerusalem rejects those who are sent. And this is happening again as Paul is journeying himself. We're in Acts 20, heading to Jerusalem and being warned that afflictions and arrest will um, await him in Jerusalem. So it's an echo of what happened earlier, and we'll see today that it's also predicted in the Gospel of Luke. So let's begin. We have quite a few slides, but a nice handout that will help you follow it. Let's go to the context of this passage which about uh, from Luke, Luke 13, 31, 35. The context is this. Are there just a few being saved? That's what's asked. And the answer is interesting. And it's laid out here. Um, that, by the way, that question was asked in Luke 13, 23. Lord, are there just a few being saved? In Luke 13, 24, we have the narrow gate. So here is the interesting answer, 1328b29. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west, from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So here you have unexpected people, sinners, Gentiles, pagans, outcasts that are being saved, and the, the important people, the leadership, the power brokers, the ones who uh, are supposed to be the important ones, are going to be thrown out. Now, that's not the way you win uh, status with the people that have power. And, of course, they're offended. I have a statement about this. In Luke Acts, unexpected people are saved while the self-assured leaders are hostile to Christ. In banquet scenes in Luke, sinners dine with Jesus and the respectable leaders are offended. And this is a preview of what will happen in Acts as people are saved. Now let's go to the next slide. Luke 13.31 is the first one we'll reference. This will be an overview of what we're going to cover today. Herod wants to kill Jesus, Luke 13.31. Luke 13.32 and 33. Jesus' goal is death in Jerusalem. Luke 13.34 is Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. Luke 13, 35, Jerusalem's house is desolate until. Don't miss the until. The until's in Luke Acts are very important. 
God doesn't say until when something is never going to happen. There's an until. So let's go to Luke 9, 22 and 51 so that we set the stage for the journey to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 22 and 51. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That was setting the stage. Then in verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. In the Greek, it said he set his face. Setting his face is an allusion to the Old Testament prophet who set his face like flint. This is God's purpose. He will go to Jerusalem. This is how Luke is laid out. So um, we need to understand these things. Son of Man is a, an allusion to Daniel 7, and it's a reference to Messiah. And so they are shocked by this prediction that their own leaders would reject Israel's Messiah. This is also one of Jesus' prediction of his own resurrection. His uh, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. Think about this. That's also in Luke 9, in between these verses. There, Elijah and Moses are there with Jesus, and they're discussing his exodus, which he's about to accomplish. And so his exodus is a reminder of the exodus of the Old Testament. Jesus is traveling from Galilee up to Jerusalem, and his travel, that's a word that's repeated often in this section, his travel ends up in heaven at the right hand of God. Jerusalem rejects him, but he has yet further to go all the way to the right hand of God, Psalm 110 and verse 1. In between is the transfiguration. Now let's go to the layout. I want to show you how this is laid out. When I preached this in 2008, um, we didn't have handouts. It was with a different group, but this we didn't have a way to just look at it like this. I think you can see it pretty good. Notice in red, the first point, Jerusalem, eschatological or end-time events, Luke 9, 51 to 56. That's where it all starts. The center, and that's our verses today, the center, Jerusalem, 13, 22 to 25, end-time events. In other words, the kingdom of God is confronting you. That's where we're at. The end, Jerusalem, eschatological events. Now, this is all laid out in Luke in a reverse order. So it goes this way, this way, this way, this way to the center, and then reverses, and it's, it's a chiastic structure, and it goes back in the same order using different terms and parables and sayings and teachings and ends up back at the same place. Jerusalem that rejects the prophets that are sent. So we're right in the middle of this long travel narrative which emphasizes Jesus' journey to be rejected as part of God's plan of messianic salvation that will go 
to the end of the earth. In fact, seeing the brilliance of Luke-Acts as a two-volume work, the layout, the literary structure, the brilliance of this, and the fact that these things happened in real time, place, and history should convince everyone that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This is one of the finest pieces of literature that we have written originally here in the Greek language in this case. Now let's look at another part of the layout here. In our section, Luke 13, and now we're in 22 through 35, there's another reverse parallel construction. Salvation, judgment, vision, fulfillment, death. Herod wants to kill you. And then the center, which are the A's here, and then back to salvation, you say, blessed is he who comes. And what we're going to show you today is that the salvation part, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, doesn't happen at the entry to Jerusalem, but it's yet future after Daniel's 70th week. Only the disciples in Luke say, blessed is he who comes. The rest are ready to reject him. So, having said that, I listened to my own sermon, by the way, about four times. I don't know, I don't know how I talked so quickly when I was 58 years old. But here we go. Uh, and people seem to be able to follow it. I, uh, I don't know. Maybe we all got older together. Luke 13, 31. The good thing is we had one thing per slide then, which was a verse, and we'll expound that. That's what we're here to do. Luke 13, 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away. Leave here. For Herod wants to kill you. Jesus is in um, Galilee. In Luke 4, he had preached there in, in also in Nazareth. They uh, were not receiving him. So the question that people have is, why are the Pharisees wanting to help Jesus? But notice it says some Pharisees. Excuse me, Herod... Antipas had already killed John the Baptist. And so some Pharisees found, and they didn't like the fact that he killed uh, a Jewish person. And some Pharisees warned Jesus, you need to travel, you need to get out of here, he wants to kill you. I have a statement about this. Why are Pharisees trying to help Jesus? There are some Pharisees who do want to help Jesus, you do not want Jesus to be killed by Herod. This is Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, the very one who killed John the Baptist, who also now wants to kill Jesus, according to their report. They say literally, go out and travel. This is a travel narrative. He's traveling to Jerusalem. This entire section is about a trip to Jerusalem to be rejected. So the oft-repeated word in the travel narrative is often included. I'll point it out when it is. We know that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, 951. Jesus will not die in Galilee. 
like John the Baptist, he will die in Jerusalem. Let's go to verse 32. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, when I originally preached this in 2008, I had done some research, and I looked at this today, tomorrow, the third day, kind of interesting terminology. We know he doesn't reach Jerusalem three days from when he says this. Not even close. So what's this? What kind of reference is this? Well, having looked at the material, I think it's reminding us of something that happened in Exodus. Remember, in Luke 9, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples are, they fall asleep and they aren't seeing what's going on right away. And then Peter later wants to build three tabernacles. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. I think there's an allusion to Moses. This is an allusion to the Old Testament. It does not mean he will be in Jerusalem in three days. It stands for an imprecise but limited period of time. And he says, I reached my goal. The word goal here, teleao, means to finish one's course and bring it to completion. This word is used 23 times in the New Testament, including in key passages about God's purposes of bringing messianic salvation to sinners. Jesus' goal is to go and travel to Jerusalem preaching and die when he gets there, and that will be a death for sins to save sinners. Now let's look at the today, tomorrow, and the third day. I believe it's probably an allusion to Exodus 19, 10, and 11. The Lord, that's Yahweh, also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So this is unique terminology to Exodus 19 in this passage in Luke. So before this travel began, Moses was on the Mount of, with Jesus, Mount of Transfiguration, speaking about his literally, in the Greek, exodus, which he's going to accomplish. This is an allusion to Moses, to the Mount of Transfiguration, and to the fact that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's traveling and will accomplish his purpose and will die for sins and will be raised on the third day and ascend to heaven. This is God's purpose. This is what God is doing. And when I study these things, and thank you for allowing me to go back and redo a sermon from 14 years ago, um, it inspires me to, to know the Bible's true. Believe the Bible. No one could have thought of all this. Luke wrote this. This isn't some... Uh, contrivance from centuries later. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by a traveling companion of Paul. So let's go to the Luke 
13.33. Luke 13.33. One of the terms that you find in Luke Acts is this phrase, it is necessary, and that in the Greek is day. And when it's used in Luke Acts, it's almost always in the context of a divine necessity. Necessity. It's God's purpose that makes it necessary. Jesus could have gone somewhere else, but this is God's intent. Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, I must, must, there's day, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Now, this really raises some questions. We know that John the Baptist was a prophet. He perished outside of Jerusalem. So how can it be that no prophet can perish outside of Jerusalem? Well, here, I believe we find an important answer. Jerusalem, in Luke Acts, stands as a sign, or almost like a metonymy. This is the headquarters. This is Israel. This is the place. This is the place of promise, the city of David. Jerusalem is the one who kills the prophets. So here it's used to show that if Messiah will be rejected by the people who had received the promises, and particularly the leaders and the authorities and the powers that be, it's going to be in Jerusalem. Not in Galilee, it's going to be in Jerusalem. And of course, other prophets have perished outside Jerusalem, but it cannot be that the prophet, priest, and king Jesus would. Impossible is a unique word here, but I think it implies that they they're, they're, they won't receive him. This isn't going to happen. They won't receive their king. It, uh, I won't go into the details of that Greek word. Uh, here's another reading that I saw I thought was interesting. If you, some uh, a scholar by the name of Nolan said this, if you must reject those sent to you by God, you should do it properly by doing it at the heart of all Jewish affairs in Jerusalem. That's ironic. All right, you're going to reject Messiah, we're going to reject the prophet. Do it in Jerusalem. Go to the hilt, and then you can see how wicked you really are. It's ironic. This is utterly wicked, but at the one and same time, it is God's intent. It's God's purpose, and it's not the final word. So I have a statement that I wrote in my notes here. Jerusalem epitomizes everything about Israel in her fallen state. Jerusalem and her leadership symbolize the spiritual condition of all of Israel. And therefore, it's necessary that Jesus would travel and not die outside of Jerusalem. Now, the next verse is a touching, powerful verse. And it's Jesus' lament. There's a later one where he weeps over Jerusalem. But here, the very center of the travel narrative, he laments. And I want to focus on the idea that 
though everything that happens is ordained by God to bring about ultimately the church age and then ultimately after that the fulfillment of the promises to Israel, the salvation of sinners, and all of these things, yet the lament is real. It's heartfelt, it's compassionate, it's real. The very God who loves you and sent his son to die for you also grieves over the hardness of the hearts of the sinners who reject him. It's absolutely real. Jerusalem, thir- excuse me, Luke thirteen thirty four, Jesus, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, literally willed, to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And I have on the heading there, the, the Greek is willed. He willed to save them, they willed to not have it. There's a parable where it says, we will not have this man rule over us. There's tragedy, pathos, passion, sorrow, but yet a call to be saved. And the ones who answer by God's grace are the ones that are usually downtrodden, despised, Samaritans, Gentiles, a few of the leaders. But God is a loving, compassionate, and gracious God. Today, I want us to come away with a strong understanding that we can believe everything the Bible says and not have to choose to believe part and reject the other because of our prejudices or parochial theological uh, relationships. Let the Bible teach all of us, and we'll end up with the truth, because God has spoken. Now, uh, there was a preview of this earlier. I'll cite this to you, Luke 4.24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. That's a previous statement. And then in Acts 7.52, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. That's a review here, Acts 7.52. All of this is there. Excuse me, that's a preview. When it comes up in Acts, it's a review. Stephen says that in Acts 7.52. Here's something I've emailed to different people that contact us through the, because of critical issues, commentary, and some of our podcasts. They don't often be taught these things. Many people go to church their whole lives and are only taught a few verses here and there. They didn't even know this was in the Bible. And they can't understand it. How can it be? How can this be? And sometimes I've actually said, try this, do this. Read Luke. Just read it. Take your, Whatever it takes, take your time, but read Luke, and then read Acts. It's a two-volume work. And see if you don't see what God is saying there. But most people, they skip, skip, skip over here, skip over there, skip over here. And then the preachers do that, say, see, you don't have to believe any of this other stuff. 
It's not right. Read the Bible. God tells us what he's doing. How about this one? Luke 7, 23. Luke 7, 23. Jesus said, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Think about that. God, the Son, the Creator, comes into his own world, born of a virgin, the sinless one. And he said, if, you don't, if you're not offended by him, you're blessed. Why? Because almost everybody was. He didn't meet the expectations. Offense is what it's all about. I've been preaching. That's why I'm doing this now. It's a little uh, side here to go back to because I've been in very heavy verses in First Corinthians. But we saw there the cross offends everybody, Jews and Greeks. Now listen to this one. Jot this down in your notes. Luke 11.49. Luke 11.49. This is before the passage that I'm preaching on here, which is in Luke 13. Think about this, and this is why it's pertinent to what we're doing in Sunday school. Luke 11.49. For this reason, also, the wisdom of God said, quote, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. Luke 11.49. I believe the reason... The reason Saul, now Paul, converted as an apostle in Acts 20, was determined to go to Jerusalem is the same reason Jesus was. This is a prediction of what's going to happen. Even Paul going to Jerusalem with a collection for the saints there ultimately will be rejected in Jerusalem as well. Even after the vindication of Christ through his resurrection and his ascension, he's pouring out of the spirit. Jerusalem still rejects prophets. In this case, the apostle Paul. Here's a statement that I would like to make here. Rather than analyzing this philosophically and making conclusions based on human wisdom, we must truly hear the true love and passion in Jesus' lament and listen to what God says about himself and his ways in regard to judgment and salvation. Please, by, I, I, I ask you fervently, allow the Bible to teach. Listen to the whole counsel of God. If we could just get our philosophy and human wisdom and how we think God should do things. Let it, lay it aside and let the Bible teach. It's not irrational, but it's loving, it's compassionate, it's powerful. We need to learn. All that God says about himself is true. And we do know what he's revealed in Scripture is inerrant and inspired. The biggest problem I've had in 50 years of Christian ministry is that most Christians are angry at a lot of the things the Bible says. Whether it's because they're liberal or because they're parochial. Well, God wouldn't send anybody to hell. That's the liberal. The parochial, 
well, God would never elect anybody. Well, don't tell God what he can and can't do. Read the text. Read the Bible. Let God tell you what he does. Luke 13, 35. Here's a statement now of judgment. Behold, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's Psalm 118, 26. In Luke Acts, this is not referring to what happens at what we call the triumphal entry. In, in Luke, it's, it's an entry where the disciples welcome him, but it's an entry where Jesus again will weep because they're going to reject him. This until comes later, after Daniel's 70th week. Now, there's some important words here. The word desolate, I have a slide about that, I believe, but it means uh, released. Turn loose. You, uh, you release Jesus, Jesus released you. Okay, you're turned loose. It's a judgment of hardening. So in Luke 19, 37 through 38, the crowd of disciples are praising God, but the leadership of Israel did not. He wept over the city. So let's go to a summary slide about release. It's thematic. It's an interesting word, by the way. When we talk about forgiveness of sins, typically in the Bible, in the Greek, it's release. So sin is a cruel taskmaster master that rules over sinners and keeps us alienated from God, keeps us in bondage, and keeps us facing the wrath of God. When Jesus proclaimed release to captives in earlier in Luke 418, I have that on the slide, they ended up wanting to throw him off a cliff. They want that. God is releasing those who believe in him from captivity. But here in Luke 13.35, your house is left, left desolate, a fiamy, which means to send away, dismiss, divorce, release. Luke 4.18, in Nazareth, hometown, send me to proclaim release to captives. Think about this. Do you want to be released from your sins, or would you rather be released from Jesus? and his call and his claims. They said, you go away, we're going to throw you off a cliff, which they didn't accomplish. He left. But they could have been released from sins. They weren't interested in that. In John, Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you continue my word, you'll be my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In John 8, they said, we've never been in bondage. <laughs> go away, we don't have a bondage. Why do you preach the wrath of God against sin? Why do evangelists tell people they need to repent? Because the world's deceived. How many people think that there's a literal hell and they may go there? <laughs> yeah, believers do. I didn't believe it until the day I was converted. The moment the lightning bolt or the thunder from heaven got a hold of me, and I, I was an enemy of the gospel, that moment I knew also that hell was real. How, I cannot tell you, other than God opened my eyes. 
If I don't repent, if I don't believe in Christ, I know where I'm going. Before, I thought it was all nonsense. Let's go to some applications. Three of them. Understand that God's purposes and human responsibility are compatible. Number two, God still intends to save ethnic national Israel. And number three, Jesus had to die because God willed to make a plan of salvation available to all. The scope of the gospel is universal. The number who believe are few. But no one's excluded based on whatever things. All this for all humans. Let's go to Luke 24, and we'll, we'll start with verses 6 and 7. This is after the resurrection. Luke 24, 6 and 7. It says, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man, that's the one from Daniel 7, Son of Man, that's the Messiah, must, there's our word, be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. That's the one that was predicted as necessary in Luke 9.22. Day. Divine necessity. Now, why do I say human responsibility and God's purposes are compatible with one another? Because human wisdom says, choose one or the other. Unless everybody is free and going to get in, can if they decide that's what they want, then God is then they're not responsible if it's not that way. Or people say if God's chosen some to be saved, then God's not just. And responsibility implies free choice. Well, people have free choice, but they choose against God every single time because they're sinners. I was free to choose it. I made my choice. Get out of here. Don't tell me one more word about religion. I've had enough. Time to party. Go. God had a different plan. You are headed to hell. You need to repent. God was merciful to me, a sinner. And so I'm calling that, and theologians call it compatibilism. Look at, again, Luke 9.22. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and chief priests and scribes be killed, be raised on the third day. This must happen. No, it happens in the hands of sinful men. Look at what it says. Who does this? The hands of sinful men. It must happen. It's God's purpose that it would happen. It's prophesied in the Old Testament that it will happen. It's prophesied by Jesus that it will happen. It does happen, and the ones that did it are fulfilling God's purpose and are wicked sinners at one and the same time. And they're not going to be able to say, well, you were able to use us, so open the doors of heaven. 
No, they're fully responsible. This is a statement that I made in 2008 when I preached this. Uh, so I'm, it's kind of weird to quote yourself, isn't it? But here it is from the past. God is committed both to justice and mercy. Never will injustice be done by God in his own universe. As a matter of fact, and I affirm that that is a correct statement from Scripture, based on what the Bible says about itself. God is just. God is merciful. The merciful God of the Bible provided a way of forgiveness and release at the cost of the suffering of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who bore the pain, and the grief. The tears are real. Passion is real. Prayers are real. The weeping's real. Judas did what he wanted to do. No one is going to get off the hook. And if we embrace the whole counsel of God and believe it, we will start learning. At one point in my life, I finally had to just do that. Seeing human wisdom go amok for years when we were doing different inner healing and counseling in the 70s, people getting hurt, people being disillusioned. I was forced to go teach the Bible. I shouldn't have to be forced to do that as a person who was trained to do that. Whatever the Bible's teaching, we need to teach it and help people understand it. Human wisdom won't cure us of much of anything. But God is just. Everyone who rejects Christ is morally culpable for doing so. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. Salvation is a gift of God. It's not earned. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. And the Bible will come alive. Luke 22, 21 and 22. Luke 22, 21, 22. This is at the Last Supper, supper, by the way. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going. There's that word traveling in the Greek. Son of Man is traveling as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, which we know as Judas. Now, determine, horizo, that's where we get our word in English, horizon. It's, it's the, in God's horizon, it covers all time, in his eternal purpose, in his eternal decree, there's a Judas. That doesn't mean Judas isn't fully morally responsible for what he did. And so here it says, the Son of Man is traveling, that is, to Jerusalem, to be rejected. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Judas is guilty. God is sovereign, and 
Another one failed, that is Peter. He had a different outcome. I mentioned that, I think, recently, if not last week. I have a statement here. Determined is a divine passive, in the Greek, by God. Judas did what Judas wanted to do. No injustice was done to Judas. Some folks are so liberal, they go, oh, poor Judas. Sometimes you wonder. There's people that feel sorry for just about any evil that's going on. Um, but we need to have our minds renewed by the Word of God. I had a professor, Dr. Robert Stein, who taught hermeneutics when I was in seminary. He has a commentary on Luke. He says this, The present verse is a good example of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility exist alongside each other. Both are true. And if somebody says, you choose part of the Bible and reject the rest, don't go along with it. No, I think I will believe the whole counsel of God by his grace, if I can understand it. And I'll keep seeking more understanding. Let's go to Acts 2.23. One of the most important verses on this in a key place in the Bible. This is Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost after Jesus' travel up to Jerusalem to the tomb, resurrection, raised, and then he sends up into heaven. And he pours out the Holy Spirit. Psalm 110, verse 1, seated at the right hand of God. And here's Peter, newly filled with the Spirit, preaching. Here's what he preached. Acts 2.23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan, there's our word herizo, again, decreed, appointed, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter emboldened by the Holy Spirit, poured out on Pentecost, preaches to people gathered on the day of Pentecost from all over. He indicts them, said, you nailed to a cross. Wow. Did Peter not go to the Dale Carnegie course? I'm dating myself. Anybody young wouldn't know who Dale Carnegie is. Uh, or uh, how to be... Robert Schuller or whoever. No, this is the truth. It's loving to tell the truth. It, we're so used to advertising telling us what somebody determined we think they think we might want to hear, so we'll buy their product. Peter just flat out told them, you are guilty sinners. Here's a question. How can God in will, in one sense, what is against his will in another? Let's think about that. Did God will the rejection of his own son, which was predicted in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere? Yes. Is rejecting the son a sin? Yes. That is what the Bible teaches. I had someone that I love 
Todd came and taught many times in the 80s and 90s. I sat and talked with him. He said, no, there's only one will in God. I, I won't believe that. There are many people who just won't believe it. And part of the reason some people are like that, they don't ever have the responsibility of teaching verse by verse through a large section of Scripture or even a whole book. So you go here, 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 you go here. I know one thing, whatever it is that I teach, but when you are forced to deal with it as a pastor, and I made a commitment in 1983 to start teaching verse by verse, I can't just skip it and go to another town and preach something else. It's right here looking at me. So am I going to say, no, reject one of these? Well, how do you do that? Open theism? God didn't know what was going to happen. Well, he must have. He predicted in the Old Testament. Universalism? Well, everybody ends up in heaven. Or whatever, however you want to do it. Liberalism? Everything's evolving. The Hegelian synthesis, good and evil, melding together and evolving into a better one. Eventually, there's no judgment, and all evolves into, that's the emergent church. Here's another alternative. Believe the Bible. It will, it will bring joy to your heart. It will redeem your soul. Just believe what it says. So there are two wills. The providential will of God also called a secret will. And it says in Ephesians 1, b who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's fine. That's what it says. Number two, the moral will of God, which holds the godless men responsible for their wicked sin, and they'll have to confess that God was righteous in his judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. Both are true. Sinners are doing what they want. God is working out his eternal plan. Let's go to Acts 13.48. Going to another section in Acts. See, if you want to not offend anybody, this is one verse I'll guarantee you you will skip. But God has not given me that opportunity to skip. I don't want to. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is Paul's speech in Pisidian Antioch, an important speech in the book of Acts. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many had been appointed to eternal life believed. Luke didn't make a mistake. Luke is a brilliant writer and really knows the Greek language. Luke wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's clearly thematic in Luke Acts. So you say, well, then, how can that be right? How can that be true? Uh, let me tell you this. This doesn't restrict evangelism. It emboldens it. You want to be a bold evangelist? Then you know that if you proclaim the truth to people... If there's someone there, like these ones, we don't know ahead of time who it might be, they will respond. It, it isn't dependent on me selling something. It's dependent on telling the truth. Paul didn't pull any punches in, in Pisidian Antioch. He told the truth. And people rejoiced when they heard it. 
I am so glad it happened. I wouldn't be a Christian if someone hadn't told me the truth. In this case, it was my fiance, who's now my wife, told me the truth, and God intervened. We do not know who this will be until we preach the gospel to them. That's how you find out. Preach the gospel. We don't know the mind of God, but we do know he has those he'll save. Acts 17.31. Because, this is, by the way, speeches are important in Luke Acts. For example, if it says the Holy Spirit comes up, came upon someone and they speak, as in early in Luke, then they're speaking the truth. Here, Paul is speak, speaking in Acts to the Athenian philosophers. Acts 17.31. In fact, I'll read verse 30. It's not on the slide. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, Paul preached, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, here's our word, herizo, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a public event. He appeared raised in his resurrection body to over 500 witnesses. He ascended to heaven before witnesses. He preached before witnesses. Some believed that even after the resurrection, some wouldn't believe. The soldiers, according to Matthew, knew as well as anybody he was raised, they took money to lie about it. That's all sinful sin is. <clears throat> it's not revealed who it is who will repent, but we need to preach this to all. The command to repent is the means that God uses, as Christ has preached, to convict sinners. So he told these philosophers about future judgment, the resurrection, they need to repent. I so admire evangelists and boldness as people go. It's not an easy thing to tell people what you know they don't want to hear. But it's not, nothing's more loving than to tell people the truth. I can tell you that. Now let's talk about Israel's future. This is where a lot of it goes wrong because some people decided the church, God's done with Israel. The church is the new Israel. Baptize your babies, and that's how they become Christians. And take dominion over nations, and that's how Christianity spreads. Eric was talking about that in Sunday school. No, that's not the point. We're in the times of the Gentiles, and God is saving people, Jew and Gentile. Luke 13, 35, this is what we saw in our text. Until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes. It didn't happen at the triumphal entry in Luke. It's yet future. So they asked about it. After all these things, the disciples asked. Here it is on the slide. Acts 1, 6b and 7b. Lord, after the resurrection, before the ascension, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? a good question. They had heard the intel. What's his answer? 
It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Do you believe that the Father can fix a time by his authority, but it's really a deception because it's never going to happen? I cannot. God doesn't fix a time for a non-event. As if to say he fixed a time where there'll be future judgment, but there really is no future judgment because John Lennon was right, Eric mentioned. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no heaven or no hell. Well, you can imagine it, but there is. And it's a fool's dream to think that there's no hell or no heaven. The future restoration of Israel is fixed and certain. Yes. Is it contingent on Israel's future repentance? Yes. How could both be true? What if they decide not to repent? Well, they already did. But God is going to work in history through Daniel's 70th week and through all of the things that are even worse than what's already happened for restored Israel, Antichrist, all of that, the end, they will eventually um, say in a saving way for them, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This will happen. Why? Here's why. God keeps his promises. If we didn't believe that, how do we know that he promised eternal life and we really have it? There's no contradiction. God grants repentance and he uses means to do it. Luke 21, 24. God still intends to save ethnic national Israel. Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Again, until. Another one of those, until. Right now, dear ones, we're living in the times of the Gentiles. The church is one new man. That's God's purpose. According to Ephesians, Ephesians 2.15, one new man consisting of saved Jews and Gentiles. But we're in that times of the Gentiles. How long will it last? The Bible doesn't specify. Only God knows the time. And so uh, the future repentance and restoration of Israel is certain because God keeps his promises. Absolutely. He made a promise to Abram. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets, Jesus, God the Son, God cannot lie. He will keep his promises. I think I was a little quicker when I was younger. <laughs> Here we go. Acts 3, 19-21. Repent, therefore, and return. This is Peter preaching. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing... They come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, 
whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. This seals it. Why can't the amillennialists and the reconstructionists and the dominionists, why can't they get this? Is it cryptic? Is it hard? No, it's right there. The details have already been prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus already was raised, already ascended to heaven. The until is when these things are brought to pass by God. When Peter preached this, Jesus already ascended and poured out his spirit. This will happen. A remnant of Israel will be saved at the end of Daniel's 70th week. The millennial reign of Christ will be over, restored Israel. There's no until for a non-existent event, which will never happen. Some say, well, it's all figurative. Well, the first advent wasn't figurative. It really happened in detail. So will the second. Luke 24:44. Luke 24:44. This is after the resurrection, the road to Emmaus. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must, day, divine necessity, be fulfilled. Must be fulfilled. Same terminology. Law of Moses, prophets and the Psalms would be Tanakh. Tanakh, the Old Testament that we know. The details matter. It's not all detailed as it shows in Matthew in the first advent, but the second advent's all just a figurative language for the church age. No, it's not like that. So here's the same issue. We've got to get to the last slide. Here it is. Luke 24, 46, 47. Same context. And he, Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so God has willed to make a plan of salvation available to all and that he would embolden the spirit-filled church to go forth and to preach that everywhere. There's no one living in some geographical territory where they can't be saved. People have been saved in solitary confinement. They've been in jail. They've been in ships. They've been here, there, all over the world. God will save sinners. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Today, if you have not done so, repent, believe in Jesus Christ, trust him alone for the forgiveness of sins, and you will know that he keeps his promises and you'll be with him in eternity because God cannot lie. Trust in him and believe in him. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your mercy and grace. I pray that today some more will hear and understand the gospel and come to you, and that your saints will be encouraged to believe everything that you've said. 
Give us hope and grace as we go forth. In your name, in Jesus' name, amen.